this is Kate. Welcome to Two Pastors Take a Walk and Make a Podcast. This is Yolando, and as always, we're talking about what is astonishing us, what we're thinking about, and what we are preaching. So, you first, what's astonishing you this week? Yesterday, I was throwing a small, yeah, a small pity party. (laughs) (laughs) Had a rough week last week, both professionally and personally, and yesterday I was making my to-do list and was just feeling overwhelmed by everything that needed to get done yesterday, or I felt like needed to get done yesterday, and um, I was walking around my home office, again, throwing a small pity party, and I suddenly got this overwhelming, in a good way, sense, reminder of my belovedness. And I asked myself, what am I trying to prove? Why why am I in a place of trying to prove something to others, to God, myself? I don't know. Um, But I, in that moment, just started to question why I was so anxious and feeling overwhelmed and why I felt like I needed to do, I needed to do mm-hmm. everything. And I sat down and uh, I went to that place in Matthew chapter three where Jesus is baptized and there's the voice from heaven uh, that says, this is my son, my beloved in whom I'm well pleased. And I just sat with that scripture for a moment. And it really encouraged me um, to just let go of this need to perform, um, to... (sighs) Here's the thing. I said to myself, okay, Hinton, you know that you're not perfect. I know I'm not perfect. I know cognitively I don't have to be perfect. And yet there is this drive to have people applaud my performance. To be the proxy savior of the congregation, for sure. And to have them say, look at our pastor. He is working so hard. Clap, clap, clap. Pats on the back. And it's so unhealthy and dysfunctional and unfaithful. And so I was surprised in the midst of my pity party by this sense of being beloved. And when I read the text, you know, it occurred to me, right, this voice from heaven speaking about Jesus is before Jesus does anything. This is before he does any ministry, before he does any teaching, before he does any preaching, before he does performs any miracles. So at the beginning of his ministry, before he does anything, there's a voice affirming his belovedness. And I asked myself, okay, can I just sit and soak and then work out of my belovedness? Yeah, I mean, I think what is so helpful about that text, and we, I served a congregation 
years ago was we, I mean, it's one of those places in the liturgical year that I actually think is really helpful and that we probably need to um, incorporate into the culture of life at the Grove, that we we would celebrate the baptism of the Lord Sunday and um, we would do that anointing for everyone in the congregation to come forward and like anoint them with oil and, and say to them the words that were said to Jesus and you are God's beloved child in you God is well pleased and I will say that I don't feel I mean even as a seminarian at that point you know sometimes you can understand that something is right and sacred and understand that you don't understand it Mm -hmm. right and I never felt like we did a good job of explaining it to the congregation I mean I couldn't explain it because I didn't understand it um and, and maybe maybe it was explained well, and I just didn't hear it, right? But um, but I still think it's important sometimes, you know, you, you do the thing, and you don't have to understand it. And I think that's a challenge for us Presbyterians is that we don't we don't like to experience any part of God that we don't understand. So we really limit we limit how much of the Lord we can know um, and experience. But anyway, now. I do understand that the reason you say that to people and the way reason that you invite everyone up in the room to hear it, whether they are in a good season or a bad season, a season of faithfulness or a season of unfaithfulness, unfaithfulness is, is precisely that reason that God says that to Jesus before Jesus has done a thing. And also I think the way I understood it before is like, well, God knows that Jesus is going to drink the cup and go to the cross. And so that's why God says it then. Um, but that, that is not it. I think it is this blinding revelation that the love of God is not transactional, Mm. which is interesting because you could argue, you know, that the covenants, I mean, and this is, I think this all bears out that like when God is making covenant with Israel as a people, I mean, they are, if then covenants, um, as well as, but you know, if you will obey me, then I will, whatever. Um, but this is a new, is a new fulfillment of the covenant, um, manifestation with Jesus. And, and, you know, there is this understanding between God, <laughs> between the father and the son that Jesus's belovedness is not at stake. Mm. And so he, he walks out of his unalterable belovedness, which is why he can pray the prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, and which is why he can drink the cup, because he knows the love of the Father. Um, it is not conditional for him. And so I think for us as a community to be able to say to people, um, this is the kind of love that God has for you. It's not transactional. So it's not you know, be good and God will love you, be mad and God will forgive you. But then once you are sorry and fix yourself, God will love you again, or God will forgive you 70 times, seven times. But after that, you're on your own sucker. I mean, or, you know, make sure you get your act together eventually, or else, you know, that, that the offensive grace at the center of our faith is that God's love for us is non-transactional. And so Jesus, God is well pleased with Jesus before Jesus has begun to live into his anointing. And God is well pleased with Jesus when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. And if Jesus had walked away from the cup, God would have been well pleased with him then as well. And we can't handle it because we say, well, if that's so, 
then then our institutions won't work, right? Like we yeah, feel like there we, has to be a threat. We often operate by shame, guilt, threat. Right. And so we say like if we tell people that God is going to love them no matter what, then people are going to turn away from God. So we need there to be a stick as well as a carrot. Um, but God says, here's the thing. Like you are unalterably loved and with you. And, and you know, to say to someone with you, with the real you, the authentic you, I am well pleased. That doesn't mean well pleased with all your choices or well pleased with all your beliefs or well pleased with all your behaviors, but you are not your choices, your beliefs, or your behaviors, whether those are what you would think of as bad or some of us are very pleased with our beliefs and our choices and our behaviors. And that's not what God loves about us. Um, so, you know, I used to hate it when people said to me things like be kind to yourself, be gentle with yourself. I just, I don't know why that just got under my skin, but I've come to see that there's a form of that, that becomes um, a kind of overflow into how I treat others. Mm -hmm. if, if, if I'm gentle with myself, then I will be gentle with my child when he marks on the wall. I'll be gentle with our elder board when they have um, the exact opposite opinion on an issue that I have. Um, and if I'm not being kind or gentle with myself, then I will be harsh with others. Well, and I just think the reality is we live in a culture that says anxiety, existential anxiety is productive, right? And if you look at um, just the way we market and sell things to people, like we, we do it from a, you're not enough. And so if you know you're not enough and that bothers you, then you're going to be motivated to buy this, do this, mm -hmm. you know, like, and you know, so many, I mean, men too, but women I know who just like think if I could just hate myself a little bit more, I'd lose the weight. Right. Wow. I mean, and just like, I can't accept myself for who I am. I can't love the body that I have because if I do, then I won't, you know, I'll be lazy. I, I'll be lazy. I won't exercise. I won't make good, healthy choice. You know, like we just feel that earning, enoughness and earning acceptance is the ultimate motivation for making good choices. And it's just not, you know, it's a lie, it's a lie. but it is such an effective tool for the enemy of our souls to say, if you were to really rest in your belovedness, you know, then the enemy of our souls comes around and says, yeah, if you do that, you'll be a loser. And if you really believe that nothing's at stake, then you won't live into the life that God has for you. And then God will be disappointed. I mean, you know, like we just, we, we believe that lie every time. And we think being at peace, accepting the peace that God has for us in Jesus, like it sounds good, but it will, it will make us be nobodies and nothings. And I want to be somebody. So I need to hold on to my, to my, anxiety and my self-hatred and my unworthiness. Hmm. So what's astonishing you? Um, I mean, several things. Um, I guess what I want to talk about today is um, that same church that I was talking about, um, which was the first church I served, which is in South Boston, um, which is and it is called Fourth Church. And um, it was a huge gift in my life to be part of that community for five or six years. And, um, it was, 
and I mean, I'm sure Boston has changed so much in the almost 20 years since I've lived there. But at the time, um, there's South Boston, which was a, a very um, sort of elite, highly privileged um, community. And then there was Southie. And Southie is um, Goodwill Hunting. Like those guys lived in Southie. So Southie what was historically a white working class Irish community that, I mean, I believe this at the time, I just accepted it, that somebody told me this. So that the three of the oldest public housing developments in the country, like two of them were within a mile of that congregation and that those housing developments were not desegregated until like the early nineties. Um, and that, you know, Boston is this huge, it is other than New York city. It is the place where people and where immigrants coming to this country end up in Boston or New York city or other place, you know, so just the city as it's itself writ large is so diverse but it's really interesting because when you go into the city, it's very segregated. Mm -hmm. And so culturally, you know, it is, it, it prides itself on being tolerant on being, uh, I mean, you know, anti, I mean, anti-racism was not a term, but you know, on being progressive and inclusive, but people do not live together. They do not go to school together. Um, so it's interesting because, you know, in, you would have to work really hard in Boston. Like it would not be, and this is my experience, it would not be okay anywhere you went in Boston to save the N-word. Um, but people don't live together mm. and work together in the same way that like here in the South, you hear a lot of overtly racist things, but you also do see neighborhoods where black people and white people live side by side and people, I mean like, and there are, you know, people working and serving together in ways that again, in my experience in Boston, which admittedly was limited, like I didn't see. And so our congregation um, was very diverse and that's why I wanted to be there. Um, but it was interesting because the, like these housing developments, lots of families lived there who had come from, other parts of the world and, um, and, and they had gotten finally desegregated. Um, but there was just still a lot of underlying tension and there were a lot of, um, people in, um, in that community who felt like, you know, who had lived in that community and in those housing developments for, for generations who felt like they were being displaced. I mean, there's just a lot of tension and, um, but, but the community, this church, um, was a Presbyterian church that had bought the building from a United Methodist church. It was mostly surrounded by Catholic churches. Um, and the pastor who was um, called there um, did a great job with outreach and did like a lot of arts outreach and children's outreach. And so as a consequence, and because it was so densely pop populated and so walkable, um, we just had like really wonderful ministries into the neighborhood and so we had a lot of children and youth who lived in the neighborhood and were coming and were a really authentic part of the community but but rarely were their parents um like their parents would be supportive of them being there but 
not part of the regular worshiping community themselves and not leading ministries, not being elders. Not, so I mean, it was interesting, like the children and the youth were very diverse. There was diversity among the adult congregation, but much less so. Like, so what I would say is there were very few white kids in the children's ministry and in the youth group, and there were very few people of color, not none, but very few people of color who were um, in 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 the ministries with adults. And again, it's been more than 20 years since I've been there. So maybe it's very different. Um, and I, but for me, it was just a life changing experience. And I was so grateful to be there. And, um, all my, my vision for what church could be and should be, you know, really comes from those years. And I'm always say that, you know, one of the reasons that I, was really had a vision for what the Grove could be, even when people were telling me, people who were experts in transformation, who were telling me like, hey, that won't work. It doesn't work. Those churches don't exist. I'm like, well, I'm sure you're right, except that I was part of one, like not a perfect one, but I was part of one. Anyway, um, and I was there, um, I started out doing children's ministry. And then after a while, um, after I graduated from seminary, I, I got to, I mean, I was, that was the church I was ordained to serve as an associate pastor, which, um, the man who was head of staff worked really hard to get grant funding to make that happen for me. And then I started working with the youth, which I felt way more comfortable working with children than with youth. Um, cause I, I knew, I mean, I knew that I did not know what I was doing, right? Like, I mean, I was just dumb, but like smart enough to know that like I can kind of like fake it staying in my lane with kids. Um, but when it gets to teenagers, like just the gulf between the life experiences of these kids and my own life experience. And like, I learned a lot of valuable stuff in seminary, but nothing that would help me know how to show up in a holy and authentic way with, I mean, really, let's be clear with anybody, but especially with kids who, who were so vulnerable and really needed a Christian community with a, with a strong vision of, of life for them. That wasn't just a mirror of what success looks like in the larger culture. And I, you know, whatever, and love covers a multitude of sins. And I, I did love them very authentically, even though like you, like I was definitely working with my own need to be like seen as be to be loved and to be seen as a proxy, proxy savior, savior and just like all kinds of things that, you know, I mean, even at the time I knew it was gross, but like, what's the alternative? Like you come into a community and no matter what that community is, you meet people and then you want their lives to be better because they're part of your community. Right. And then when people come with very visible needs, like, you know, living in neighborhoods where they're not safe. I mean, I can remember one little girl oh, just telling me one day I was driving her somewhere and she was like, you know, I, I just don't feel safe at school. And I'm like, I don't know what to like, I don't know what to say to her. I mean, just, it just, I think what was so helpful about that experience is that it just really grounded me deeply in my limits, which is a really helpful thing for a young pastor to have. Um, but also you just feel like, oh my goodness, everybody deserves more than a pastor who doesn't know what the 
the leap she's doing. Um, but I mean, especially these kids, right? Like they deserve, you know, in the, in the kingdom of God, people on the margins deserve the best and they often, you know, just don't get it because, um, and I, you know, anyway, this one young man in particular, um, was just, his name is Tim Ellis and man, he just really could not, would not take the easy path. He was so smart and so genuinely like charismatic and strong and, um, really deeply at his core, deeply kind and, um, just, you know, did not, you know, really had a mother who loved him a lot, but really did not have the resources to, to support him. Um, and then his mother died when he was still really young and, you know, he went into the system and, you know, you know, made choices for belonging and for family. And for a while for him, that looked like, um, being in a gang and, and then, you know, ended up, ended up in, in prison and, came out and rededicated his life. And I mean, like, I feel like I learned so much. I mean, this is why, like, whatever, there's mutuality. And I, I appreciate that in the body of Christ. But also, like, I learned, I learned so much about my Christian illusions from trying to be faithful to him, right? Um, I just... And so, I mean, I, I hate that because I feel like I probably learned a lot of them at his expense, right? And um, just, but he also was just really generous and he loved people even when people couldn't love him very well. And and what we all wanted for him was, you know, Tim, you're smart and you're talented. And if you would just, you know, go to school and take advantage of these opportunities and work hard, like you could go to college and you could be anything you want to be. And I mean, that was all true, and also was just not the path that he picked for himself. And it was hard to figure out, I mean, nobody rejected him, but it was hard to figure out how to love him when you just keep seeing someone shoot themselves in the foot and you just want to, you want love to save them in a way that fits a Hollywood narrative and doesn't. And this is what I mean. Like it's hard when the church wants to be centered around success stories, because then how do you stay in relationship with somebody whose life isn't an infomercial, right? But still just has infinite, infinite worth. And I don't think that anybody in the church ever stopped loving Tim or feeling like he should be around. And again, I mean, I haven't been there for 20 years, so I don't know. I mean, I've kept in touch with him, but I don't, I don't know a lot of his story with the church, but I'm just extrapolating out like I think people can stop showing up if we have unintentionally given them the message that we love you on un, unconditionally and if you're really walking right with Jesus your life is going to look like this and then when your life doesn't look like that repeatedly it becomes a time where you just feel like well maybe I don't I don't want to be a part of this place anymore like I'm giving it a bad rap or I'm making it look like faith in Jesus doesn't quote work and um Anyway, he, he, um, in later years, um, got married and he had two sons and gosh, he loved his sons and he was somebody who never knew his dad. And so to see him 
um, love his father, be a father who loved his sons, was just such a powerful mm. redemption arc. And he, you know, worked for a while as a chef and really was passionate about that and then was working um, as a as an iron worker and really passionate about that. And then um, yesterday I got a text from one of the kids in youth group who, who was really like his, one of his best friends, although everybody would have said they were his best friend. And he, um, and he, and he OD'd on Friday. And um, oh. I just, and he, I mean, and he was in, in and out of recovery his whole, I mean, I think he started going to AA meetings when he was like 11. Like he, um, I don't know. I just, um, it's just interesting I, I appreciate that Tim complicates the narrative of what it means to be a pastor and to be a youth pastor and, and to be a Christian community and to say it's not about like people start at one place and then they come to church and then they end up in a different place in terms of material resources or degrees or credentials. Like, um, I, I think that Tim suffered greatly in his life. And I think that just the systems that kill and destroy, you know, as a young um, Latino, poor, growing up in poverty, like all the systems that, that make, that are designed to chew up vulnerable people. Like, I mean, he got sucked into the school to prison pipeline and he, and he also, you know, came out and did what he was supposed to do, which is work hard and love your kids and start a family and grind and hustle and all that stuff. And he really, I mean, if trying hard and working hard and loving God and being loved by God, if that guaranteed a happy ending, then, then Tim would have had what, the world would identify as a happy ending. And I guess like for me, I'm just wrestling with like, I don't want to like spiritualize away his life because he, he was a, a man who loved his kids and he would have loved to, ha I mean like it's heartbreaking that he never got to have a father and now his kids will have way more than he had, but they, they're young and they lost their father and that's so sad. And, um, I don't want to spiritualize that away and, and say that it doesn't matter cause it does. And also like he had, I mean like the Christian story is just his life and, um, it's complicated and there's just a lot of mystery. And I guess I just am grateful for, um, I'm so grateful for the body of Christ that made a way for us to be an authentic relationship. And I'm so grateful that I knew him and I am a better human being, a more alive human being because he was in my life. And so I'm grateful for that legacy. And also I'm just sad, um, sad that he's, not here. I'm astonished that he's not here. Um, because, you know, I guess also, and then I'll shut up cause I don't even know what I'm talking about, but like all of the institutional ways that we want to address injustice and brokenness in the world, like Tim had access to, like, 
he had access to a, a church that really loved him. He was involved in the PZUSA. He went to Presbyterian camps and he had a big brother who was amazing to him. I mean, he, he was part of recovery communities, like all of the institutional things that we just think like, if people will do this, they'll be okay. I mean, he had access to all of that and, and it made a difference. And also, um, you know, it, I, like, I'm just, it's just devastating. Um, it's devastating. And so I'm, I'm astonished that he's gone and I'm astonished that I got to know him. I'm so astonished that at some point in life, I was supposed to be his pastor. Like that is just like mm. ridiculous. Um, and, um, yeah, that's, that's, that's what I'm thinking about. There's, um, a line in the committal liturgy that is in our book of common worship for funerals. And, um, every time I read it or say it, um, it strikes me. Um, it's at the end of the service. You're at the grave site. And um, it says, acknowledge we humbly pray. Yeah. A lamb of your own flock. A sinner of your own redeeming. And um, I said those words for years. And then... At one funeral, the power of those words struck me um, because I think you're right. We have this template about church life and those who um, are in the body of Christ, those who engage with the ministry, that there is a certain... Um, trajectory and we look for success to look like a particular thing yeah. and um, that, that, that part of the liturgy of the committal uh, reminds me that um, when we talk about the Lord's redeeming that we, we really are talking not simply what happens in the, the, the time we're breathing in this life. There's something larger, more powerful um, going on. And um, I used to see those words as not sad, but, but, but with the, there, there's a kind of somber tone to them. Now uh, they are glorious and celebratory um, that here is a person, their, their life has ended. And no matter, I don't like talking about levels, but wherever they were in life when that life ended, that redemption story continues. Right. And I mean, we wanted yeah. to reach a certain point here we want to sound a certain note here, and we think that it was a failure if they don't reach a certain place here. 
Well, because I think we don't understand faith as primarily being a process of being redeemed by the Holy Spirit. We think of faith as something that we do for God and we grow our own faith. And so we think like, well, yeah, let's compare the person who grew more to the person who grew less, as opposed to saying like, no, this is a redemption process. And so whatever wherever you are in the process of being redeemed and whether that happens, whichever side of eternity it happens on, there's no sense in, in being prideful about the speed at which the grace of God is at work in you. Right. And I just, again, like, I don't think we like to acknowledge that because we feel like our institution, our human institutions won't work unless people feel like there's going to be some reward for their hustle. But, um, I mean, I just like, I think what I think most of all, looking back on my relationship with Tim and, um, I think this connects with what you were just saying is like how incredibly generous he was that like, um, I mean, man, like the, all of these people who were pouring into him, at least in the, in the church community were like all these well-meaning white people with graduate degrees who were supposed to be like resourcing him. And I, I mean, I just don't, I mean, for all the reasons that we've talked about on this podcast, like, I don't think that we, I don't, I didn't meet him at the level ground at the foot of the cross. Right. Um, and I, I tried to love him as and authentically and how, you know, serve him. I mean, I tried to do those things as well as I could. And I just was very limited in what I could see and what I knew about myself and other people. And I, and I just think like, you know, I can remember, um, like after he went to prison and came out from prison, he asked me to read monster, which is, oh gosh, I'm blanking on the author's name. Um, and I really want to get it. Um, he's, um, shoot. You can just edit this part, this slow part out, right? Um, who who wrote it? Um, um, it was. Sorry, talk amongst yourselves. Um, Walter Dean Myers, Walter Dean Myers, who is, yeah. um, I mean, he's 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 an African American man. He's won the Pulitzer Prize. He's he he really writes for young people, and um, and and this was a book about. Um, a young man who, who had been in gang life and it was banned for a while. And, you know, and Tim, after he came out of prison, like he, uh, he said, I, he read that book and, and he said to me, like, I want you to read this book because it's true and it's me. And I, and I didn't read it because I, I knew enough from reading about it that it was going to complicate my narrative of who he was. And I just wanted to believe that, like, you know, like it was simple, like he, that anything bad he did wasn't really him or he wasn't really responsible for it. Or it was, I mean, I don't know. I, and I, I think he, I look back and think like he was trying to tell me who he really was and he really needed me to read that and then stay like, I love you and this doesn't change things. And I think I probably said it, but you know, and I just, and again, like he's still, he was generous and like a lot of my biggest youth ministry disasters, like he was right in the middle of, and I, I, I can think of a lot of places where he justifiably could have, you know, made some choices that would have really blown up my life and would have been totally, I mean, there was no reason for him not to do that, except that 
he was a really caring guy and 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 he just had a lot of grace towards people who authentically loved him even though we didn't know how even though we didn't know how um and i mean hell like i don't think i would do any better if i were in relationship with him now but i mean i think i would have a better understanding of what my role was. I mean, I think like Paul Farmer talks a lot about just like accompanying people. And I think I would have had a better understanding of knowing like, it's not my job to fix you. Um, it's my job to love you and to like help you pay attention to what the Lord is calling you to and what the Lord is doing in your life and to reassure you that your belovedness is not at stake and to support you, um, on, on your, on your lowest days and to remind you on your highest days that this doesn't make you more, more acceptable in God's sight or in mine. Um, yeah, and that's a real shift in ministry where you stop trying to fix people. You stop trying to fix the church and you just let them be beloved. <laughs> mm-hmm. And that's, that's really, that's challenging because through our seminary training, we're kind of get given the message that we're, we're being trained so that we're, we can be sent out not to lead and love, but to fix what's wrong. Well, and like, like real talk, like you and I are very explicit about wanting to lead a healthy and holy multi-ethnic communities. So, I mean, how does it square with on the one hand, not trying to fix people and loving them. And on the other hand saying like, Hey, the spirit of God is creating a certain kind of community. And are we going to resist it or are we going to participate in it? Right. And like, how do we both say to people, it, it really matters how we respond to the Lord. And I love you and I'm going to accompany you unconditionally. And I suppose like, I'm going to love you. I'm just going to tell you the truth. And that truth doesn't mean I love you less, but loving you doesn't mean lying to you and saying that you're okay when you're not okay. But it does mean saying whether you make the the healthiest choice or the most destructive choice, I won't protect you from the consequences of your choice, but I won't abandon you. Like I will never leave you or forsake you. Yeah, that's good. Um, But I think that's really hard because I don't want people in our communities to feel like my love for them is conditional based on whatever, like how woke they appear to be or how, you know, you, I don't want people saying, you know, making racist comments and saying, this is who I am. Like I am who I am. Suck it. But I also don't want people to feel like if they're really struggling, that they have to hide that from their pastor because I'll reject them if they are brave enough to be vulnerable and say, Hey, I, you know, I don't, I don't, feel comfortable here or I don't want this or I, you know, I don't agree that God is calling us to that or I, you know, whatever. I think it's just really hard because there's just a real tension between loving people as they are, but there's a real tension between you are God's beloved in whom and in you God is well pleased and choose this day who you will serve or, um, repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. There's tension there that can't be resolved. Mm, that's good. Wow. 
Well, it's not good. It's real, well, but no, it sucks. It's, no, it, it's good that <laughs> that we acknowledge that tension because to go to either extreme leads to twisted, dysfunctional life and distorted theology. Anyway, what are you thinking about? Well, I am thinking about um, a new name for me, uh, Robert Robert Sarver. He is the uh, owner of the Phoenix Suns. Um, that is an NBA team. And recently, about 70 people in that organization, um, present and former uh, coaches, players, managers, have come out saying, listen, um, this man has a history of making racist and um, misogynistic statements. And he has created a culture within the organization in which those things are okay. Now, Mr. Sarver has come out um, and said, hey, listen, I have never uh, used the N-word, um, which one of his coaches said, no, I heard him. I, we've had a conversation about him um, using that language. Uh, but he has said, I've never used that language. I'm not racist. I, I, there's nothing in me that's racist. So now the NBA is doing an investigation, right? So all that aside, what I really want to get to is the church because we just have this extreme where we don't allow people to confess, <laughs> yes, I did this. We see people either as complete saint or trash, and repentance is not allowed. Repentance is not valued. And so, of course, this man has to totally deny any racism, and there are African Americans within the organization who are defending him because, you know, the organization, to its credit, is diverse. There's a lot of diversity there. But that diversity doesn't mean that racism isn't going to come out. It, the, that very context is the context for things getting exposed. And it's okay. We've got to allow for calling things out, saying something is wrong, and giving people an opportunity to confess and change. The system that we have that says you're either completely innocent or completely guilty or completely trash and we've got to throw you away, it's just unhealthy and un unhelpful. I'm trying so hard not to talk to all this. <laughs> so many things. I mean, it just, it, it is such an immature understanding of humanity and of, and of the way of Jesus. I mean, so like clearly... If you say you have no sin, the truth is not in you, right? So the reality is the original sin in this country, in this culture, is racism. And and again, 
apologizing to um, Ibram Kendi X because I misunderstood his work before I, here's a thought, read it. I mean, when he says like the beauty of anti-racism as a third category is because we want to say there's just two categories, a binary, you're either racist or you're not racist. And he's like, look, here's the thing. Everybody says they're not racist. Like Hitler said he's not racist. That guy, I'm sure it's like, it's one of those Bill Clinton depends on your meaning of the word and, right? He would say, I've is. never used is, whatever yeah. it is, right? Whatever ridiculous yeah. thing. He would say, I never use the N word. And by that, I mean, if I said it, I was just quoting someone else and I didn't use it as a racial epithet so it doesn't count or I was just quoting a rap lyric or whatever. So he can't, you know, he's just stuck in this binary of I'm either a racist or I'm not racist and I have to be not racist. Therefore, I have to deny that I've ever said or done anything that was ignorant or intentional or unintentional or harmful to people of color, right? And so you introduce this third category of anti-racist, which says, much like a Christian's right understanding of sinfulness is, I don't have to deny that fallenness, sinfulness, brokenness is a part of my life. What I have to be is like a member of the recovery community of knowing that there is this force that is active in my life that I am powerless to overcome through willpower or desire or clean living. And I need the help of a higher power in order to live a healthy life, right? For us as Christians, that's how it should be with sin. And for us as American, white Americans, we have to understand ourselves as people in recovery from racism our whole lives. And you can have a conversation about whether people in other ethnic groups can be racist and that's a fine conversation for somebody else to have. I don't have to have that conversation because I'm white. So I just know that racism is a factor in my life. And if I deny it, I empower it. But if I accept it and confess it, then I can say, I want to stand against racism wherever I find it, even if I find it in myself. And so not if, but when somebody says like, hey, you, when somebody loves me enough to say, Kate, I know that this isn't who you want to be. I know this isn't what you would have intended to have happen. But when you said or did these things, it was harmful and destructive to the values of this community or to the way of Jesus. And like, I need to know if you, what you love more, do you love me enough to want to, to ask for my forgiveness and seek amends? Or do you love more your ego and your false self? And are you going to then maneuver to protect your reputation as opposed to embracing the truth? Do you want to be someone who is part of a a healthy and holy multi-ethnic community? Or do you want to appear to be someone who is? That's the choice, right? Yes, because I think there are many African-American Christians in majority white Christian spaces who have to protect the fragility of white people by not having these kinds of conversations. And this is exactly what we should be doing. And I think that's why we don't see more multi-ethnic congregations, because this is the work. You're going to have situations in which someone says something or does something that's racist, but it's an opportunity to then uh, walk out the gospel. Right. And I, I think to your point, you want to say like, well, if I'm in a diverse community, that's proof that I'm not racist. But if you want to feel and be affirmed in your not racistness your whole life, then you're going to have to be in a homogenous community or you're going to have to be in a majority white community where anybody who's not white has decided 
that they just will bury and swallow all of the things that would ever make you feel bad and just take the hits in order to continue belonging. But if you are in a healthy multi-ethnic community where someone truly believes that their pain matters and someone ironically truly believes that you love them, then being in that multi-ethnic community is not going to expose you to your non-racistness, it's going to unexpectedly expose you to your limits, to the ways that you do have these white supremacist assumptions, right? And and I think the point is we don't have to be melodramatic about it because it shouldn't be new news to any follower of Jesus Christ that they are a sinner undeserving of salvation. I mean, like if that's new news to you, then I need you to meet my friend Jesus (laughs) because whatever you've been doing has not been accepting forgiveness and unmerited grace from the Lord. Like that isn't what you've been doing before. But if you know that you're a sinner, then when somebody comes to you and says, Hey, this is what your sin happened to look like in this. You can be embarrassed and you can say, I'm embarrassed. You can say. And I get the reflex to say, no, not me. I get, I get I that get initial impulse. And you might just right? need to say, you know what? I'm really uncomfortable and I don't want to say anything that's going to make it worse. So I'm going to need a minute just to go and to collect myself so that then I can come back to you and not further harm you, right? Like if you need a minute, you can just say, I need a minute, mm-hmm. right? Um, and, but I just think that is going to happen. And if you can't hear it, if you if you are just sitting here thinking, please don't ever, don't anybody ever tell me that I did anything wrong. Please don't anybody ever tell me that I'm racist. Guess what? It's a spiritual community. People won't. Because especially people of color who are willing to be in community with white people, like they're not there just to like, they're not there just to bust your chops, right? Like people Correct. people who are not interested in having relationships with white people, people who are just interested in making white people feel miserable and hate themselves and like want them. I mean, like I'm, I think that all kinds of people exist. And so I think that those people of color do exist and I don't have anything, any judgment against them, but I'm just saying like, they're not showing up at your local Presbyterian church and being like, you know what I really feel like doing today is sitting down in Bible study and making a white person cry. Like that's not people who are in your community are in your community because they want to be part of a healthy and holy multi-ethnic community, but they want to be able to show up as their real selves. And they want to know that if you hurt them, you actually care about them, which to be fair, we're not good in, homogenous racial communities telling the truth when we hurt that one another. So I'm just saying like, if you just never want to feel like you are, have any racism in you, you better stay away from multi-ethnic communities because you are going to discover that you are in fact, shocker human. And in my experience, most of the time, most African Americans I know, not all, but most, they'll wait a couple of times after you say something, do something racist, and then talk to you about it. They won't jump on it the first time. So if someone says something to you, usually it's that they've noticed a pattern. Mm-hmm. This is something, okay, we see this in you. We need to talk about this. If 
if this relationship is going to deepen, if this community is going to go deeper and be genuine family, then we've got to talk about this. Yeah, and I I think it might be helpful for white people. Um, like there's this woman, Glennon Doyle, who's a Christian author, blogger. She used to be in the category of mommy blogger, but she's expanded. But she did um, write a piece one time that was really helpful where she talked about how with her kids, as they got closer to adolescence, she would have them practice what they would say, like practice their no. So like when, like instead of just saying to her kids, don't smoke, don't do drugs, don't drink, she would say, let's practice. You're at a party and somebody hands you a beer. How are you going to say no? Right? Like, you don't want to look lame. You don't want to look like a narc. You don't want to look whatever. So like you want to say no, but you need to think about how you're going to respond because if you don't think about it and you just expect to spontaneously navigate that perfectly, Mm. like it's probably not going to happen. And I think as white people, we probably need to think about and prepare. How am I going to respond when the time comes, when somebody says to me, you did this thing that was racist, that was harmful. And like, you know that you're going to feel terrible and embarrassed and ashamed. And your instinct is going to be, who knows, but probably not, probably not healthy. Like probably your instinct in that moment is not going to lead you to your best self. And so you might just want to be prepared to say, okay, I need to take a deep breath. And I need to say to this person, thank you for sharing this with me. I'm going to need to do some work to absorb this and the implications. So I, I need to pray and seek the Lord about how to be faithful. Can I return to this conversation later? Right? Like that just might be what you need to do and you know you could be really transparent and say I have all kinds of really big feelings right now and I'm afraid I might make it worse if I talk about it right now so can you do me the further grace of giving me a minute you know a couple I mean whatever it is but like that moment is coming and it's going to be hard and to pre-plan how am I going to respond with grace um, is a really it, it would be a really helpful thing in terms of than putting the needs of the other person at the center instead of my own feelings. Yeah, and that's really so challenging, I think, um, uh, you know, for white people in these times because there is this um, theology in the church that says if it feels bad, it must be bad, and if it feels good, it must be good. And so if mm-hmm. some if that kind of conversation comes up, then it's very easy for people to have this reflex, say, nope, that, that feels bad, so, <laughs> like, Critical race theory, it must be bad because it makes me feel bad. And there are a number of institutions and congregations and theologians who would say, and politicians say, yep, that's exactly right. It's bad because it makes you feel bad. Right, which is exactly why when Jesus said to the disciples, okay, now it's time for you to know the real deal. In three days, I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm going to be arrested and I'm going to be killed uncrucified on a cross. And, and Peter Peter's said, like, uh, no. no way. There's no way that can be true because it makes me feel terrible. So this is not going to happen. And we, that's our initial response. And, and 
you know, I think we just need to be really um, suspicious when we just outright reject anything that makes us feel bad. Mm-hmm. Like sometimes it we should, right? But we just our knee jerk reactions often are are not the most helpful yeah. ones. So, and I think our our wrong expectation that that life in a healthy and holy multi ethnic community is always going to make us feel good about ourselves as I mean, as anybody, really, that's well, a wrong expectation. It's like marriage, right? The wedding day is great, but then there comes a time. I mean, every once in a while, my wife will say, um, yeah, do you realize you do this? And a part of me knows she's right. We live together. She sees me day in and day out. Oh, I do have that really bad habit. But my reflex will say, are you, you're kidding. Are you right. Kidding? And if you love but me, why true. are you not just yes. giving me a pass on this? Yes. And I think that in the Christian community, if we love one another again, it's do we accept one another unconditionally? Yes. Is our relationship transactional? No. But does loving one another mean that we lie to each other and that we like allow people to continue to stumble al- along and wound themselves and others? Like, no, that's not, that's not what it means. So, so what are you thinking about? Well, I'm thinking, and and I'm earlier this week I was listening to a podcast um, called The Moth, which I listen to occasionally. My kids really like, um, and it's just a um, a podcast of storytellers on NPR, just people from different, hugely different walks of life telling stories about all kinds of different things. And um, sometimes they're great, and sometimes they're not, but they're always interesting. And, um, there's this one story that this one man told that I just heard it and I was like, Oh man, I need to talk to Yolanda about this. So the guy's name is Al Letson and he's telling a story. He's a, um, I think he's a teacher and he's also a playwright and he's also like an audio engineer. And he got, um, a project, a, a, a grant, um, where he, was able to go to, um, I hate it when I, I've just had so many blanks in my head today. Um, dang it. Malawi, 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 yeah. Malawi. Mm -hmm. I think that was the country where he got to go. So he got to go to Malawi and he was working with, um, a producer and he was a playwright and someone else and they were going to have this experience in Malawi and they were going to come back and write a play about it. And I hope I have the name of the proper country. Embarrassing if I don't. Well, it's, but it's a small it's like East, East African. But not on the coast. It's landlocked. Okay, mm-hmm. then I think I did mm-hmm. get that right. So... He's there, and and it's a, he it's he's a good storyteller, and he's talking about how like he's not going to be the typical African American man who comes to the continent and then has this like I'm home experience, and he's decided that on the plane coming over there, and then he gets there, and he's like, and it's a good thing that I've decided that because the Malawians that I meet don't treat me any different than these white people that I'm with, and he's mm-hmm. like, you know, so I'm just there, and it's fine, and then he um after like on the second to last day they go to a a prison and it is a boy's prison and um one of the things that's going to happen is there's a um and the conditions are terrible and the boys have a choir and um they're going to and they and they say to them this american delegation like these these boys have a choir and they 
and they never get to sing for anyone. So we hope it's okay. Like, can they sing to you? And so they say yes. And he's like ready to record this. And the, the boys start to sing and it's that traditional call and response form. And it is just undescribable, trans transcendent. And, and he said, you know, this was, you know, he said by, you know, the first song I'm just recording. And then by the second song, he's like standing in the middle of them. And then Mm. by the third song, he's like dancing and singing. He's having this like ecstatic experience. And, um, and it's just this idea of like this, this, and, and then he says, and telling the story, like I grew up as the son of a Pentecostal preacher and he's like, this is the holy, like this is, you know, and, um, and then he's talking and it's like, I'm tracking with this whole story so much, right. Just loving it. And it makes total sense to me theologically that like, of course, the place where you see the holy is here. You just see the, the beauty and the power of God in the lives and in the community of these young boys who are prisoners and who are powerless and who are despised by the world. And they're just like this, have this beautiful song to sing. And, and of course you would experience the Holy spirit in their midst in a way that you never would anywhere else. Right. Just of course. And he, and he says like, he, he comes back from that and he's just like a, a mess. Like he can't like, you know, the people he's with are, are talking and moving on and he's just sobbing. Like, like he just mm-hmm. cannot, he cannot incorporate this experience into his life. And he goes back to his hotel room and, and like none of the recordings happened, like somehow they didn't take and, 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 but it's just, and he, and he thinks like, I, I'm going to have to go back to church. Right. Like I have, Mm. I have seen the Lord, like I'm right, you know, and, and then, um, but the last part of his story is he's like, you know, but I never went back to church because I can never experience the holy anywhere else like I experienced there. And so I, you know, and I'm like driving down the road and I'm like, you, whatever, because here's my pet peeve. And I hate this. I hate it. I hate it when people have a powerful revelation like transformative experience of the sacred and their takeaway from that experience is, well, now I'm too holy for, uh, now I'm too holy for Christian communities, right? Like I just cannot be satisfied with your like stupid, piddly, um, performative, fake community now that I have no, like experience the sacred in the middle of this mountaintop. And so like, I don't know, like I, I was just noting to myself how triggered (laughs) I felt by this man's testimony, which is like, now I, I mean, he didn't say this, but essentially like the language that I would put around it is like the Lord revealed himself to be the God of the prisoner, the God of the orphan, the God of the destitute, the God of the condemned, right? That, that holiness that we encounter the holy, when we 
enter into community, enter into the song of the, right? Like to me, that's just so consistent with the biblical um, narrative and revelation of scripture. And I understand better than anyone, obviously, like how, like just blasphemously we use and abuse the name of the Lord and the word of the Lord. So I, I get it, especially in America. But but also the flip of that is to say that there is a remnant, right? Like you're not Elijah. You're not the one person who has not been the knee at the at at the idols, right? Like there are imperfect, like flawed, hypocritical communities everywhere of people who you know, fail, but do understand that this is where the, that this is where what true holiness looks like. And this is where the Lord is leading us. Right. And it just makes me mad when a person's takeaway, having an ecstatic experience of God and their takeaway is now I am too good. Now I am too holy. Now I can no longer settle for the commercial. I'm like, great, then find a non-commercial Christian experience. But I mean, I would point out that it was your experience growing up in your Pentecostal church that gave you what you needed to recognize the Lord when, you know, when their manifestation of glory happened in your midst. Because the other people who were with you, they didn't, Mm. they didn't, they had a powerful experience, but they didn't see what you saw. So I don't know. I just, I'm I'm really anti-spiritual pride. Did did he come back to the States looking for a church and I mean, he just said, like, yeah. I never went anywhere, right? And yeah. he said, but, like... But did he stay in Malawi or did he come back to No, he US? came back. Like, it was okay. a it was a trip, and then he came so, back. And as he was trying yeah. to, you know, think about what it meant, he was saying, like, I might have to go back to church. You know, that I thought... Yeah. He said, I thought this was going to bring me back. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. I just couldn't be satisfied with anything else once I had oh, had this moment of glory. I had all kind of feelings around this. Excellent, please. Well, um... Oh, gosh, I don't even know where to start. (laughs) Well, let me start with, let let me pick up where you left off. Um, And I think maybe an analogy might be helpful. Um, Because I hear his response as um, a trauma response. Um, And so... thank you for saying that. That's helpful. Because... um, um, I'm reminded of, I think it's a book or something lately that's popular. It's, it's something called uh, The Body Remembers the Story or something yeah. like that. Mm-hmm. So in, all, in that whole story, what I, what I heard was this African-American man who has um, carried, whether he is conscious of it or not, the, the trauma of being an African-American um, in in America, being black in America, he travels to Africa and has this experience. Um, and he, he tells himself that he's not going to have it. He's not, right. he's not right. going to be one of those who says, oh, I'm home and, you know, all of that. Right. And he says and so, explicitly, like, I'm not any closer to these people than I would be when I went to Paris. So like, this he, is not, yeah. He is somewhat conscious of the potential mm-hmm. of something happening um, and I, I, it sounds to me as if he's, he's trying to guard his, um, I don't know, his, his consciousness from a lot of stuff welling up that he can't control. Mm-hmm. 
And so he goes and he hears these children, and there is this wonderful moment of integration, of connection, right, with being there on the continent, these people, these boys who are, they are at the same time home, quote-unquote, but in prison, yeah. Right. So they are, they are, they are um, home, but don't have their freedom. He knows what that's like. Mm-hmm. Um, there's this music uh, that uh, connects him to his Pentecostal roots. Um, he has this experience of the holy. Um, also, there's got to be some kind of healing, something taking place. And what came to my mind was. What if you have um, someone who uh, is the victim of a violent sexual assault and they, some years pass, pass, and they have an opportunity to travel and they live with a family, a couple, and they are like loving. They're near perfect. But this person has in their mind, like, I'm... I'm never getting married. I'm never gonna. I'm never gonna fall. I'm. Mm-hmm. I'm not doing that thing. But they experience this family, and they just have this experience. I'm like, well, now, now I'm because of this experience. Now I'm ready for a relationship. But they're not ready for a relationship. I think this man was probably sincere when he said, "Ah, I gotta find a church." But there's still a lot of work to do. <laughs> there's a lot of woundedness and healing that still needs to take place. So I'm not really sure if it was spiritual pride. Could be. Yeah. Or it could be um, okay, the um, right, we, we can we can suppress trauma and so this was an opportunity for some things to come up and now he's gotta he's gotta walk it out. Um, and maybe he decided not to do that for whatever reason. But I just I, I just heard the whole thing as a trauma response. Well, and that's helpful. Mm-hmm. And I mean, in, in a generous way to put it, because I mean, obviously for me as a white woman to have judgment or expectation about how he should process well, his experience, I, I just, um, I am very defensive about, I mean, when somebody comes and says like, your church isn't good enough, I mean like, yeah, right? <laughs> and so I, I think... Um, but he met, let, let's say, let's say he, he came back. I mean, it would be challenging sure. to find a church that knows the God of the prisoner. Right. 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 For um, sure. so my friend, um, Jeannie in Omaha, Nebraska, white woman recently retired, did prison ministry for a number of years. Um, and I can't remember what it was called, but it helped prisoners. It, I think it formed congregations. I think it was called Prison Congregations of America. They formed congregations inside prisons and helped ex-offenders find right. congregations when they, were on, when they were mm-hmm. out. But it's really challenging to find existing congregations willing to uh, embrace ex-offenders. Right, and so for sure. possibly this this man tried and it it would be hard to find that. 
Um, and that's a, that's an indictment against the church. Sure. Sure. Um, no, for sure. And I think, I mean, the reality is like you have a transformative spiritual experience and then you're left to figure out, well, how do I integrate this into my life? Right. Yeah. Like how, and that's a, and that's something. Especially you if you're, it's, I do think it's problematic and it can be like, um, uh, being addicted to a drug, you're trying to reproduce a certain high. If you have this experience and you try to reproduce it in another another setting, mm-hmm. try to find it again, I think that's that's problematic. But right. also for this guy, I don't know if he recognized his trauma and the healing that needs to take place. That that's where I would go in that. It's like, look, yeah. you that transcendent experience. It wasn't just about the beautiful singing. It wasn't simply about the location. It's about something in you. You've got some pain. You've got some trauma. You've got some stuff that God has given you an opportunity to work out. And I may be, (laughs) I may be putting the template of my own thinking, my own life, and my own experience on top of that story uh, because I. Real talk, I, I think that would be true of me. If I were in that situation, that's exactly what I would need to do. Um, I could I could totally see myself in that kind of experience. Yeah, well, I, I, I think it's really interesting that, like, I, the way of Jesus is both very transcendent. It's It's the transfiguration, and it's also pick up your cross and I mean, it's, and very, um, earthly (laughs) like that, you know, and so I think we, we get in trouble when we need it to be all one or all the other. Right. And, and figuring out how to integrate, you know, it's not all burning bush. It's, it's not all right. And so, so when you have a moment like that, then the response is to say, not give me another one. It's to say, like, okay, what does this mean? Like, like, what are what are you trying? How am I to be changed by this? Mm-hmm. How, what are you showing me? And what is my response? And and I think probably one of the reasons I felt so triggered by him is that, like, I definitely think we don't know how to help people wrestle with those moments to be a community where someone could come in and said, "I've had this moment." Because when there's a person like that who's had that moment within your community, it's unsettling for everybody in the community by design, I think. It's supposed to be unsettling for all of and us. we want to shut that but down. But it's scary, right? Yes. And it makes us all feel vulnerable, and, and that's, a hard, that's a hard thing. It's that healthy spiritual discomfort that yeah. we don't – that we want to believe that we're going to at some point grow beyond well, permanently. And this story also connects me um, with your friend Tim. Right, so if he is, if if the body remembers trauma, I mean, just who knows all the trauma he was carrying and wrestling with, and that's why the end of his story is grace and redemption, and um, if he is carrying an extraordinary amount of trauma then in some way you could see um, quote-unquote success because he did better than his father. 
right? Yeah. And no, I mean, I, I, I think that's part of, and Lisa Coons helped me see this, that we just don't know. We only know what we see in other people, yeah. right? Which, I mean, is a judgment on me, a helpful one that I receive about that story. Like, I mean, I don't know anything about that guy except what he said in his story. And then, you know, you can't help but hear and fill in a context and make assumptions and connect it to your own in ways, to your own story in ways that maybe might not be helpful at all. And I think, you know, to look at Tim's life and to see it as a beautiful and sacred gift from God and then to really spend some time in awe and wonder and mourning and say, like, what does this mean? Like, what, I don't, I want to be changed by this. I want to be changed by the whole truth of his life. I don't want to carry it in a way that honors um, the Lord and honors him. And it just takes some time to figure out what does this mean? And so what your church community did for him is what therapists say all trauma victims need. And that is in order... And this is what the guy in that story you just told from NPR had. What what a what a trauma victim needs, first of all, is a safe place to begin to let the trauma come up. And they they have to be able to say to themselves, I'm safe. Because if if they can't say I'm safe and genuine genuinely feel safe they're going to fall back into their same survival trauma responses. And so in order to get control of that you know, reptilian brain, which is really difficult, even if you haven't had major trauma, uh, you've, you've got to feel extremely safe in order to say to yourself, oh, that thing that I did to get through that horrible thing I experienced, I don't have to do that now because I'm safe. And that thing that I did back then is actually harming me. And that, that's a that's a hard, yeah. hard thing to do. Yeah. Um, and I I mean I wrestle with that in my own life when when certain things trigger me um, because of certain experiences in my own life, um, especially dealing with racism in America, it's <laughs> really hard to just get a grip on myself and say, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm safe. I, I really am safe. I mean, there are times when, um, you know, I want to, I want to, I want to grab my child and, and have this kind of anxious moment with him. Um, and I have to like, just shake that off and say, okay, no, he's, he's safe. He's not, me back in the day when I went through whatever it's like no this is different but that that's that's a work yeah yeah I think that we have talked for long enough on this podcast <laughs> I think that we will probably need to leave the people in suspense as to what we're preaching this week because um yeah so if you want to see what Yolando does this Sunday with our text um then you should go to um the Derida D-E-R-I-T-A Prez website deridaprez.org you should check out their YouTube channel you should 
check out their um, podcast, which is on the Podbean website, and you should go to worship with them at 1030 on Sunday mornings. And if you want to find out more about what is going on at The Grove, then you should go to our website, which is thegrovecharlotte.org. You should go to our YouTube channel and our podcast, which is on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, the Grove Church podcast, you should join us for worship on Sunday. Um, if you like, I, I shouldn't should you. We would love it if you joined us for worship on Sunday, either on, on Facebook, on the live stream or in person at 10 o'clock. But you um, please need to wear a mask so that we can keep everyone safe from the COVID. Um, so thank you all for listening to this very messy, vulnerable <laughs> authentic podcast and we will talk to you next week. <laughs>